0: Welcome to the New Zealand Initiatives Podcast. My name is Oliver Hartwig, I'm the Executive Director of the Initiative. I'm joined today by our Chief Economist, Eric Crampton, and we have a special guest in the office, and that's Damien Grant from Waterstone. Damien, of course, is an insolvency practitioner, or was one and <laughs> hopes to be one again. <laughs> and it's great to have you here. Welcome, Damien. And thanks,
1: Oliver and Eric. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: You're not just um, from the insolvency business, you're also... Uh, one of my favorite columnists. Um, You're the reason I click on stuff every Sunday morning, first thing. Um, I'm also a columnist, and I recently wrote a column for Newsroom, and that's the reason why we've invited you, actually, um, because I wrote about the European insolvency situation and um, some interesting data coming out of the European Union from the European Systemic Risk Board. They pointed out that this recession that the Europeans are having because of COVID is a very unusual one because it didn't cause any great number of, of insolvencies, quite the opposite actually. Insolvencies in Europe have been trending down. So it's not the kind of recession that we used to have, it's something quite different. And when I wrote this column and published it, I thought actually the one person who could probably help me understand this even better is Damien, and that's why I've invited you to the podcast. So Damien, from your experience, are we witnessing a normal recession in New Zealand as far as insolvencies are concerned?
1: Well, I go back and ask a larger question. Are we actually uh, experiencing a recession in, in the way that we understand it? So if you think about business cycle theory, it doesn't matter whether it's a Keynesian, the Manast or the Austrian ones, there's some. There's something happening in the economy that, that drives insolvencies and creative destruction and all the rest of it. But we're not seeing that here. What we had from March probably through to about August in various jurisdictions you had a high level of government intervention which restricted a large numbers of economic activity but not all economic activity and that was also followed up with vast amounts of government expenditure printed or borrowed money and so in the normal course of economic development I'm not too sure that we would have seen a recession so, Unless you're a business that was particularly impacted by what the government was doing, say in, in tourism or hospitality, there's no real reason why your business should have been under significant economic pressure. And if your business was under any economic pressure, then you would have seen a flash, um, a rush of government money. So I, uh, it's it's probably not surprising, although it's, it has caught me by surprise to be fair. But but looking backwards with the advantage of hindsight, what we are seeing is a highly unusual set of, of events, we are not seeing a recession in, in what we would think about as the, the GSC or the uh, 2000, the dot-com bubble and stuff. We're not seeing an uh, an internal or external economic shock that's creating a those sort of economic uncertainties that would drive insolvencies. You are seeing a government deciding, hey, let, let's do this thing, hurt some sectors, doesn't hurt others. Uh, and I think that might go some way to explain it. So we're sitting there looking to see a recession, but that's not necessarily what the economy is experiencing.
2: It seemed more of a real business cycle shock what happened last year than a traditional kind of monetary one, right? So all economic activity was basically shut down for a couple of months, or close to all of it. There were real supply um, issues, right? So we had lots of supply chain problems, issues in getting materials in, even if the government hadn't shut you down everything was pretty strained. All of that gave pretty good indication that we'd have far worse economic outcomes now than we did have. We've gotten kind of lucky in some of it. Um, The failure to get insolvencies out of this, though, there are sectors that we'd expect to have more long-term effects here. So tourism in particular, uh, nobody knows when the border is going to be able to open again. The government has just come in with a pretty substantial bailout for the tourism sector it's kind of debatable how whether they should have been doing that given that we don't really know when they're going to be able to reopen back in March it was temporary support like March of 2020 March April it was temporary support until we saw what was on the other side of lockdown and whether things get reestablished again It it seemed to be intended to help businesses get moving again very quickly but there were some sectors that were going to be taking a much longer-term hit with the borders being closed. And we haven't really been seeing quite as many insolvencies as we might have expected here. But you'll know more about it than, than we would. Um, and we've heard some indication that it might be some uh, IRD taking a bit more of a benign view uh, in some cases. I'm curious to learn a lot more about that.
1: Well, let's, we'll come to the IRD uh, in a second. But let's just think about it from um, a, a rational business owner. So if you think about something like the GFC or the dot-com bubble or, or, or something else happening, you're sitting there thinking, okay, the world has changed in a way that I don't understand. My business revenue has gone from, you know, has dropped 30% and I don't know when that's going to come back. So in that situation, you're thinking, okay, I'm going to close the doors because all of a sudden my business, my, my customers have gone, I don't know when they're going to come back. This is not that situation. So if you're sitting there you thinking, okay, my customers have gone, but I'm expecting my customers are going to come back when the lockdown issues. Mm-hmm. And, and so with access to with uh, and the, the capital markets continued to function and function really well because there's so much liquidity flushing sloshing around the system. If you had a viable business in February, you lost all of your revenue in March and April and remember a lot of businesses didn't, but if you lost your revenue in March and April, um, you're sitting there thinking, okay, this is a temporary this is a temporary blip. I'm not going to close my business. As a result of a temporary blip, if you are a financier, a landlord, uh, or a creditor of that business, you're going to be reluctant to take the normal insolvency measures to to end that business because you're thinking, okay, that business owes me X amount of money. If I put it into receivership or close its doors, put it into liquidation, I'm not going to get a recovery on that. It is better to compromise my debt than it is to. To, to close it down, but if you're looking in a, in a, again, go back to the GSC, if you're a lender of that business, you think, well, okay, the world has changed. That business has got a 30% downturn in revenue. I don't know when it's going to get that. Um, I may as well go and attempt to grab my money now. So I think there's a different psychology that, that's happening there. But the other thing you're talking about, the Inland Revenue Department, that is a big driver of insolvencies in, in New Zealand. So the Inland Revenue Department is directly responsible for about 20 to 25% of all insolvencies in New Zealand in a, in a typical year. So if you don't pay your tax, the commissioner will uh, will get around to enforcing that debt and, and tipping the companies up. Um, but also a lot of we, um, we don't get Inland Revenue Department
0: work. Can I just interrupt briefly? So the remaining 75% would be banks typically?
1: No. The, uh, banks are actually responsible for a very small number of insolvencies in New Zealand so um, the, the driver of insolvencies uh, so first and foremost it's the Inland Revenue Department the, the thing to understand about the IRD, if you don't pay the landlord, if you don't pay the power company something happens, if you don't pay the Inland Revenue Department, nothing happens, you get a letter from the Inland Revenue Department, it can take them six months to six years to actually roll the business up So, um, but it, so you don't you don't pay the tax nothing happens nothing happens nothing happens you learn not to pay the tax and then suddenly you get a demand for six months of pay and gst and at that point it's all over but what those people do those directors do is they then go and they talk to their advisors and their advisors say oh goodness you know you you need to go and, and talk to an insolvency practitioner and then they come to to talk to firms like um us and other similar firms like McDonald, Vegan, and rogers really who operate in a similar space to us um and and that's that. Probably drives about another forty percent of the of the business, and so the the remaining thirty percent, roughly, of firms that fail, this is some of it's banks. So the banks will turn around. Banks don't like appointing receiver, but a banks will say, look, you know, if you don't do something, we're going to. And so banks will say, firms will self liquidate, but then also you get a company director who just realizes this is insolvable, and 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 they tip themselves up. But coming back to what what's driving it at the moment. Um, from around March last year the Inland Revenue Department following what we believe to be f- uh, from our conversations uh, an order from on high just to stop collecting debt and they did and you can see the number of IID applications actually dropped to zero and 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 then ho- bobbled around the bottom uh, there for about six months only started to pick up um, at the start of this year and they started getting with close back to normal numbers and so what's So what was happening is you had all of these firms simply not paying tax um, because they they, they couldn't. They were borrowing from the Inland Revenue Department. But now, as things are starting to pick up, they're actually starting to correct some of these tax arrears. And the Inland Revenue Department has been very flexible in uh, doing arrangements. And, and anecdotally, we're not involved in that side of it very much, but anecdotally, we're hearing stories of the Inland Revenue Department, accepting 20, 30, 40 cents in the dollar, accepting those over time. And so that uh, that has been part of what's driving that part of the the slowdown in insolvencies. But also, I just come back to what I was saying before, um, it's not a normal recession, the way that we are used to thinking about it. It's more sort of a, a, an exogenous temporary shock. Would you expect a wave of
0: IRD applications to follow because they've been so lenient recently?
1: um, If the IRD was a rational organization, yes. I'm not too sure that they are rational in the the economic sense. We are certainly seeing an increase in activity um, in terms of uh, liquidation applications, but it doesn't look to me like a catch-up. It looks to me that they are simply returning to the level of volume that they that they had before and again understanding the ideas like you know interpreting tea leaves and trying to understand what's going on what we understand is that there are certain kpis that the that the id staff have and so they have a set number of files they need to to manage and so there's a bit of a capacity constraint there they simply can't process um they they don't have the functionality to process a large backlog because every file that comes across an officer's desk needs to be processed and assessed. So my suspicion is we're not going to see a big backlog pushed out but because that would also require a a fairly high level political decision as well. I don't think there's any appetite to do that.
2: So the kind of leniency that you're seeing IRD provide that's comparable to what other creditors might be extending to firms in hopes of being able to get a fuller amount over a longer period rather than trying to drive the business out or are they being more or less lenient than others?
1: Uh, no, I think they're following pretty much the same path. I mean, you you look at, um, at landlords, for example. And I mean, during the land during the the, the lockdown, landlords just you know. I mean, um, I've got a couple of leases out there, uh, and the landlords in my business just you know volunteered significant rent reductions. One of them, they we had a contractual right to a rent reduction, and the other site we didn't, and the landlord just gave it to us anyway because. Um, I mean I think there was some social pressure to, to to do so but also it's a rational thing to do you don't want the company to fail I mean in this other business you know that he didn't have a personal guarantee um was concerned that the business might fold or there wasn't a realistic expectation from from but he didn't understand the business um and so if and and also if you're a landlord or, or again you're a financier that that client that tenant, is critical to you. You can't afford to have a tenant fall over in the current environment, or at least that was the perception 12 months ago. And so there was a large degree of, of creditor leniency. Knowing what we know now, probably too lenient because so many businesses seem to have come out the other side doing much better than pundits like me expected to happen 12 months ago. I recently listened to a podcast
0: um in from Germany and um, it was also with an insolvency practitioner and he was talking about the European situation. A few things surprised me. He said in a normal circumstances you are able as a, uh, as a liquidator in Germany to save about five percent of the companies. But he said because um, they deferred liquidations for so long now because they've been in kind of semi-lockdown for more than a year now he thinks by the time that it will become normal again, and they have just recently normalized the rules for insolvency filings again in Germany, he thinks um, the number of companies we will be able to to save will be minuscule because we've just basically put it up for such a long time. Would you agree with that? Uh,
1: I don't, well, I can't speak for Germany, obviously, but in New Zealand, I don't think it's going to be that significantly different because they, if you're a company that has a, a, a positive revenue stream going forward. Generally in New Zealand, um, any competent insolvency officer can save that business um, uh, simply by compromising the debts that exist in that organisation. Uh, and what determines your ability to, to, to salvage a company isn't actually a function so much of his, his historical debts. They almost become irrelevant. It's going forward, is is this business trading in the red or in the black? And if it's trading in the black, then there are insolvency tools that you can use to get, you may not be able to save the company, but you can always, almost always save the business. And so the level of historical debt becomes irrelevant. And there's a difference between uh, insolvencies and business failures. So we do a number of, uh, and most insolvency practitioners do, somebody comes to you They've got large historical debts. It might have been a startup. There might have been a project fail, whatever it is. They've now got a business that's trading consistently in the black. Well, there are tools that we can use, hive downs in restructuring to take that positive income stream and move it into a new limited liability company. Um, And how large the, historical, the, the debts are almost are irrelevant. What matters is... Is this is this a business that has a viable future going forward? And it's just about moving that entity from the that that business from the current limited liability entity into a, into a new trading entity. Um, and at the moment, we're seeing an awful lot of businesses, at least with the perception that they can can trade in, into the black going forward. So I'm not too sure that 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 analysis would necessarily hold here. So it um, becomes
0: a question of the industry you're in. So if you're in tourism, hospitality, if you're an airline, it probably looks a bit different.
1: Well, if you're an airline, you just go to Grant Robertson and he'll write you a check, isn't it? I mean, I think that's the that's well, not going to be a problem. And, and I, That and was I, one of the discussions
0: they had on the German podcast. They were talking about the future of Lufthansa. And yes. Lufthansa, at least according to that insolvency practitioner, he thinks should have gone on about a year ago.
1: Is that state-owned, Lufthansa? Uh, the state has now basically propped it up, yes. Yep. Well, you, you look at it in, in, in New Zealand. We, um, our airline, I think, is about 50% owned by the state. It goes up and down. Um, it was given a lifeline by, um, by the Crown, but there is, they've got $2 billion, according to the balance sheet, $2 billion worth of secured loans uh, against that airline. Now, if you're that secured creditor, what are you going to do? I mean, realistically, you're you're not going to tip the airline up because you're probably not going to get your get the return, uh, and you also know that when push comes to shove, the state's just going to go and bail it out and simply increase its shareholding and in compensation. So for 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 big outfits like that, and there seems to be a much greater global appetite for. Um, for supporting zombie-type companies. I mean, you might remember you know, 10, 15 years ago, there was talk in China about all of these you know, um, soft money from the bank supporting zombie companies. Well, I actually think, and to, a, to a large extent, organisations like Air New Zealand are probably potentially moving into that uh, realm. And the other thing we haven't spoken about is, is, the, is the massive amount of cheap money that's going out there. There was a lot of money out there looking for a home, and the quality of lending that that might be an issue going forward because um, i'm seeing a lot of low quality lending going out that the hunt for for a return any sort of a return is is resulting in good money going into bad organisations so organisations that really should have gone through that creative destruction process those organisations are being kept afloat by by artificially low interest rates um and i think that's it's not so much the insolvencies that I that I worry about, except from personal self-interest perspective. It's the it's the fact that we have capital and resources and um, and talent being trapped in organisations that just should die, and they should be released back into uh, other organisations to to do something positive. And you know, so it's like all of this free money, or it's not free money. That's a wrong way to describe it. But incentives being given to some large organisations here to to. Um, make films in New Zealand. It's like, oh, you know, it's great and it's some sort of idea that it's a zero-sum game, but it's not true because there are other filmmakers who want those resources. So
0: just for the benefit of um, listeners who are unfamiliar with the term zombie companies or zombie firms, um, that's typically a company where the interest payments exceed the profits. Um, And of course, the possibility of that increases with more money flushing around. So when I look at um, European newspapers, I've seen figures of up to 15-20% estimates for zombification in the European economy. Where do you
1: think do we have it here? If the the metric you're using is the interest rates are greater than the profits, I don't know that that would apply here simply because the interest rates are just so absurdly low. But if you look at a, a, a zombie company where the assets are considerably lower than the liabilities, I would say that we have a large number of those sitting out there and they may be able to nominally make a profit um, or or at least in a position to sustain losses for a long period of time and a longer period of time than would have been possible seven or eight years ago.
2: You're making these assessments, you're looking at balance sheets and firms in general or you're basing it on the insolvencies that are coming in before you and your friends in the industry, having chats around which sectors are uh, putting up more
1: liquidations. What do you look to? Um, I'm driving that I've got um, I buy debts, bad impaired debts and and where I'm getting some of that uh, feedback from is the organizations where I, I I buy ledgers from and so I'm looking at I'm looking at those ledgers and I am seeing a reluctance to uh, so okay you got you've got a business and you great they've got you know 500,000 uh, on receivables and you know they, they, they want to sell that. And, and in their mind, they're thinking, well, 500000 I should be able to get three four 400000 for the receivables. And I'm turning around and saying, well, I'm going to pay you 100000 And they say, why? And I said, well, because you know, two-thirds of your ledger are at 180 days. I mean, so yeah, you're, you're making a nominal profit, but you're only making a nominal profit because you're not collecting any of the debts that are out there. So they are, they, these firms are extending credit. They're not getting paid for the work that they're doing, and they are covering the cash short, sh- shortfall from from lending, and so that's one of the things that I'm I, I'm I am seeing out there, uh, and so yep, you've got a firm that nominally has a good balance sheet, but it only has a good balance sheet because then they are not prepared to write off the uh, impaired loans, and you have a large number, and you, then you have a look at their accounts payable, well okay, they're not collecting the debtors, but they're not paying their bills either. And they're not coming under pressure for paying the bills. Now, now my experience is not a, is, is not a good one because it's not um, a, a random sample. It's the sort of businesses that I, I tend to deal with. So that that might give me a, a skewed perspective as opposed to somebody with a, a wider view pit.
0: And so it becomes a cascading problem. So companies said, would otherwise be healthy go out of business because they can't can't collect the receivables
1: yes except that at the moment because the economy appears to be continuing to grow i mean we we have this ongoing um money printing half a billion dollars a week or whatever adrian or is pump a month uh, that adrian or is pumping into the economy vast sums of cash are flowing into the system and that is potentially sustaining it now the uh, the gamble, of course, that uh, Grant Robinson and Adrian Orr are running is that that's going to kick-start the economy into real sustainable economic growth, and all of these sort of problems will, will kind of disappear because as the, uh, the economy gets larger, these sorts of issues uh, dissipate. The, the, the challenge, and it's the unknown, and I don't know the answer, is when that money printing stops, when the game of musical chairs comes to an end, does, does it all fall apart? Now, I don't know the answer to that, but obviously smarter people than me, at, at, you know, number one and two of the terrorists, seem to believe that it won't. Well, it's it's
0: quite a gamble. It's quite substantial. It's $20,000 per person in New Zealand. So that's um, the $100 billion actually divided by population. But it, there's a limit, $100 billion at least at the, at the moment. Do you think that will be extended out of sheer necessity because they
1: think they can't stop this gamble? At the moment, the crown accounts seem to be doing reasonably well. I saw it the other day that the revenue was four billion better than than expected. So, um, and I, I find it extremely distressing when the economic facts on the ground don't coincide with my economic theory about what should actually happen. Because, um, as somebody who believes in the Austrian theory, I mean, I've you know this had all fallen over by now. Um, um, you know, when does this malinvestment actually come to a crashing end? Uh, but you know, the, at least for the short term, the, the Keynesian system seems to be working. The, the The numbers that are coming out there shows positive, ongoing, and sustained economic growth, which is distressing for me. From as I said, it, it this, this doesn't accord with, with what I think should happen from a uh, from a theoretical perspective. Um, and what I don't know is, um, has the paradigm shifted, and 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 have the bureaucrats worked out a way to actually defeat the business cycle and and move us not only to a soft landing but to an ongoing sustained uh, uh, nirvana, or is all that's happening is that we are delaying the inevitable explosion when it comes? Are we are we heading to a massive economic crash or worse? And I and this is what I think is even more frightening are we are we repeating the, the Japanese experiments? If you look at the uh, Japan from around early 1990, 1990, 1991, they went down this path and they have continued down this path for now three decades. The Japanese central bank owns something like 7 or 8% of the Japanese bourse uh, because once you go down this track, you get stuck. The only way out is to let the system crash or just keep pumping in more liquidity. And so my concern is that well, at the moment, the numbers seem to be doing uh, reasonably well, but they're possibly doing reasonably well because of the amount of economic stimulus. But at some point, you can't keep printing money because you do debase the currency and think it out of control. And so the next thing you know is, you know, we, okay, well, you know, what, what did e- Economics do? The next thing they did is they started um, buying equities to to maintain the share price. Japan was the country I was thinking about when I asked you that question, but that's been going on for
0: 30 years. And in Europe, they've had um, basically zero interest rates and QE since 2010 or 2009, something like that. So it can take an awfully long time until we get there. We've only just started. They're all pretty different things, too, though, right? Like the
2: Japan is facing population decline and population aging. It's very different than what New Zealand has been facing. Here, it looked like the Reserve Bank was putting a lot more money in in response to the temporary shock it last March. Maintaining uh, okay, MV equals PQ, right? So the, the velocity of money times the money supply is equal to the price level times the amount of output. Everybody expects in that kind of a recession, velocity of money drops off a cliff. And if the reserve bank doesn't come to the table, then the effective money supply tanks and that mm-hmm. compounds the recession. So it's trying to avoid being unintentionally contractionary. That's one of the big lessons of well, a century of central banking. If they maintain that over several years, that'd be a problem. But I'm not sure it is a problem that they use monetary policy to respond to
0: the um, pandemic last year. It's just so easy to get used to it, especially when you've got a large chunk of companies dependent on it now. That's more the problem.
1: But you also have the situation of, so you have a look at the total amount of um, money. If you have a look at the data produced by the Reserve Bank, I can't remember the figures, but the gdp was something like 330 billion and and the amount of money in the system was about a 30 or 40 billion dollars more than that right and and that seemed to be a reasonably steady ratio well that's blown out massively now so the amount of the amount of money regardless of m1 m2 how you you measure it these days that that has significantly shifted so you you, you have a look at the japanese situation one theory was that Part of the reason why they didn't have an inflation explosion, you're talking about V, the, the Japanese and um, uh, retirees were literally keeping yen in safety deposit boxes and, or under their mattress or whatever. Uh, now I don't know whether that's that would happen here. I mean I, I like the analogy of you know Adrian Or. Prints off twenty billion dollars, gives it to Sir Bob Jones, who fills it up in the, a cake tin and 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 swims around in it like Scrooge McDuck. It's as if they never really printed the money, but I'm not too sure that velocity is going to remain low in New Zealand. But and and we are seeing inflation. I mean, we 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 are seeing inflation in and, and uh, equity prices mm-hmm. and and asset prices. There is some indications of uh, um, inflation in the, the real uh, uh, economy, although my suspicion is that that is more a result of disruption to supply chains rather than real ongoing economic pressure. Uh, and, but part of the problem is we have pulled all of the economic levers in completely random ways. You know, you you try and look for an economic model that's going to explain that, and it's really difficult to, to grasp. And so you do... Well, I tend to go back and I have a look at Japan, but then I'm very conscious that we don't have, as you said, um, Eric, we we have a very different demographic profile. And so I don't know what's going to happen. Um, I I do suspect that those in, in my industry whether I'm in it or not, going forward, are probably going to have a reasonably busy time at, at some point, but probably not in the areas that we expect. seems to be one of those eternal truths
0: of economics, that things can last a lot longer than economists predict, <laughs> but when they
1: come to an end, they unravel faster than economists would predict. Who was it? Um, I can't remember who was it, some American uh, bureaucrat who said something like, um, if something is unsustainable, it will at some future point stop. Herbstein Herb Stein. If things can't go on forever, they will
0: stop. Yeah. <laughs> yes.
1: And it, and when you think about that saying, it's for the for the current environment, it's just so true. We we are running large fiscal deficits, and we are printing vast sums of money. And everything. what could it, go wrong? Yes. Yeah. What what, <laughs> what 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 could go wrong? And and the um and in some senses, okay, you look at Japan, and a lot of the Japanese are probably not that unhappy about where they are from that perspective. But it's the opportunity cost. Where would Japan be if they had not gone down that path thirty years ago? They could have another, you know, twenty or thirty percent GDP over and above where they are now. But they, but that's and that's and it's the opposite. It's the it's the seen and the unseen. I think it was Bastiat said that that's what we're missing out on.
0: So your optimistic conclusion is that we will not have a great crash, and your pessimistic conclusion is that we will not have a great crash. Um,
1: I wrote uh, um, at the start of this uh, pandemic, I-, I wrote a series of predictions, um, of all iconoclastic, dark, and terrible. And then I had to write an opinion piece saying that I was perhaps the worst predictor of what was going to happen going forward. Um, I think that we are in an unsustainable situation, and I think it is going to unravel in uh, shocking ways. But it's um, it's a bit like playing Russian roulette, right? In in my view doing what we did in our economic reaction to the pandemic, and I know, Eric, you and I will disagree very uh, divergently on this, but I, I think in a, um, in our rush to avoid the, the medical consequences, we have played a huge game of Russian roulette with the economy, and so far at the moment um, we haven't triggered the bullet. Um, but the risk we are that we took, and in my view, the risk we are continuing to take is massive, and you go back into okay, we, we're not going to make the same mistakes that we made in 1928, 1929, right? We're not going to do that. But there is nothing, there's no reason to think that we're not going to make brand new, different, shocking mistakes that is going to have equally damaging ramifications. And then in 30 years' time, we'll go back and say, well, goodness, you know, that, that was, you know, we damn nearly upended civilization as a result of that. I think we've taken a, a huge risk, and I, I think there's a couple of other turns of the barrel still to go.
2: When I look at forward-looking inflation expectations, I don't see anything on the horizon. It's all gone into asset prices. Completely agree with you on that. Um, I think areas where we could agree, though, are that getting the border situation sorted, getting mechanisms in place so that vaccinated people from abroad who are coming from places that are broadly vaccinated should be able to come into the country on more reasonable ground- basis. So the UK has gotten their COVID rates right down, people who are vaccinated from there still can't even get into our MIQ system unless they are New Zealand citizens, right? or residents because they're still from the UK. Improving the border systems so that we can start re-enabling business travel links. I think we'd both agree to be pretty important. You'd probably want to move it a little bit faster than I would, but it's all in the same direction. I'm still curious though on the patterns of liquidations. Are you seeing anything by industry sector would where you, like is the are the patterns mirroring what you might expect from Borders being closed and slow uh, slowing business activity in international travel? Or is it keeping up with the normal patterns that we've seen previously? Or is it all distorted by that IRD is being more lenient with some sectors than others because of the
1: known pressures? I actually think there's some cultural issues going on. So a lot of hospitality, a lot of the hospitality that's been um, heavily affected um, has been stuff that's been coming from relatively you know um, new migrants or, or second generation um, migrants and that often happens right you in new country what do you do you, you jump into hospitality but and I think for cultural reasons um, and perhaps access to resources those enterprises they're closing down but in an orderly fashion not going through the informal insolvency process um and so what we what we are potentially seeing, I, 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 and I think that may be at the margin, having a small uh, effect. But it's a reasonably s- small effect, probably responsible for 20 percent of the insolvencies we're not seeing. Um, but I'm yeah. not, I'm yeah. not seeing anything different in terms of the sectors that have been hit from what I would have seen before the pandemic. I mean, I'm the construction is the one sector that I would have been thought would have been um, disrupted quite hard. Uh, and there were massive losses in the construction sector during the lockdown, mm-hmm. but indulgence from creditors has really saved that sector. And so people are looking at it and saying, okay, that, that builder or that developer owes me X amount of money, um, but goodness me, that is a sector that is just going gangbusters. And so people are prepared to, to do deals to keep that sector going whereas they probably would not have had that indulgence um, otherwise. So I'm not seeing anything dramatically different other than you know, insolvencies are. So last year, um, the number of insolvencies were a bit over 1,100, um, and, and also personal bankruptcies were around about the same level, about a, a bit over 1,000. Um, personal bankruptcies hit 3,000 in about 2010, and so that was the high-water mark insolvencies hit around 4,000 at about that same uh, point 2010-11 and And that tends to be the pattern when there's a big economic crash insolvencies don't happen straight away there's a lot of ruin in a nation there's a lot of ruin in a company so companies can continue to trade without profit or solvency for a long time before they crash Uh, and so you typically see a big spike in insolvencies 12, 18, 24 months after the, uh, the crash I'm not I'm not getting the sense that there is a big backlog of insolvencies to come. The, the wall of insolvencies that most of us in the industry were predicting a year ago, I don't think is going to come. I'm afraid that's all we have time for
0: today. Um, I'm not quite sure whether I understand you correctly that the future for insolvency, for, for insolvency practitioners is bright in the long run but i hope that regardless of that you will be one of them again thank very you. soon <laughs> thank you all and thank you very much for damien for coming in and discussing it with us and we'll watch it with interest and we might ask you back in a year's time to see where we are <laughs> with the great insolvency crisis <laughs> and the great reckoning from this crisis thank you thank you